It is Wednesday the 9th of October. I'm your host Ryan Kia and this is the Quantium Cast. Today we're going to be continuing on from yesterday's episode where we teased at some historical returns of bills. Now, today's focus, as we mentioned, is to analyze such historical returns of bills. And just to recap, for anybody who hadn't tuned into yesterday's episode, treasury bills are quite similar to bonds. However, the main difference between these two is actually within their maturity dates. Bills actually have maturities of a year or less, and treasury bonds are usually long-term investments that have maturity dates some 10 to 30 years in the future, obviously from their initial issue dates. We've obviously got to note that there are differences in maturity dates, and so holders of bonds are actually taking on added duration risk than holders of bills, and so bonds are expected to thus yield higher returns in comparison to T-bills or treasury bills, whatever you'd like to call them. However, when short-term obligations such as bills yield higher than such long-term ones like bonds, a yield curve inversion has taken place. This is an important term that is actually brought up a lot. Historically, we've had four recorded yield curve inversions, and all four of those samples that have been taken have led to a recession in the preceding nine to 24 months. So at the moment, we are kind of waiting to see if this fifth yield curve inversion results in a recession. But what is one thing that we could probably look at right now is the real returns for bills. So we're using the best case scenario from the Credit Suisse Global Investment Returns Sourcebook. That best case scenario gives 2.1% real returns. And the only issue is, is that Investors in bills over such a given period, the given period 1900 to 2014, would actually have to cope with 50% drawdowns to only achieve real returns of 2.1% in a year. So now we're gonna kind of have a little bit of a comparison of returns using the best case scenarios in the assets that we've mentioned over the past couple of episodes. So we're talking about equities, uh, bonds, and bills. We're gonna leave out cash at the current moment because cash definitely depreciated your assets to a really low figure. I think something like 94.5%, as we mentioned, you'd only have a couple of cents on the dollar if you held from 1900 to 2014. Because of inflation, your real value, your purchasing power had collapsed, if we could put it easily. <laughs> but um, let's look at, say, an investor waiting in bills at 2.1% to try and double their investment. It would take 34 years. You can arrive at this number by simply applying a compounded mathematical calculation, one times 1.021 to the power of 34. The 1.021 represents 2.1% annual growth, and over 34 years, as we're using compounded maths, we're just using a simple calculation that actually gets us to that figure. To go to two, to double your initial investment from your index number of one, you have to use that formula. Once again, I'm gonna mention it. One times whatever your uh, percentage increase is, plus one obviously, 1.021 to the power of 34. So if we compare this to equities, bills lag far behind. An investor in equities across the 23 country long archetypal data set supplied in the CSRI 2015 sourcebook, as we just mentioned, would have to wait 11 years to double their investment at a compounded rate 
using the best case scenario we've mentioned a couple episodes ago, in episode 48, I believe, a compounded rate of 7.4% per year. So the calculation we used here is 1 times 1.074 to the power of 11. That gives 11 years of patience to double your investment in equities. That's not that bad. An investor in bonds, though, would have to wait 22 years at the rate of 3.3% worth of real returns per year to double their initial investment. That's 1 times 1.033 to the power of 22, the same simple compounded mathematical calculation that we used. That's 3.3% a year in terms of real returns, 22 years, and you're a bond investor, you are actually taking on duration risk. Because remember, to get a drawdown of however much of a percent, let's let's say, I know, a drawdown of 30%, you're only selling for an average real return of 3.3% a year. This is a bond investor, right? Over the period of 1900 to 2014, across 23 different countries. That's not great. With equities, you're probably taking a similar drawdown, maybe push it up to 60 odd percent, but you're getting 7.4% real returns on average per year. That doesn't mean next year you're gonna get 7.4%, but that means if from 1900, you had put your funds across these 23 countries in the data set, on average, you'd get 7.4% a year, which is nice, and that's real returns. So the nominal figure would be much higher. Let's just assume, world inflation, I think we mentioned 2.9% across the data set. So let's say nominal returns are 10.3%, just to be safe. That is quite decent. A lot of people say 10 to 15%. 15% is quite unrealistic these days, considering the corrections that an investor has to actually deal with. So looking back over all of these assets, we've mentioned the three assets, equities, bonds, and bills. We need to actually make a general comparison between them all. And to do this, we'll take the lowest of the total years in any of the three positively performing assets mentioned. So as I said, equities, bonds, and bills to double the initial investment. And we'll then compare the net percentage gain. So let's just take 11 years for equities. We'll assume a base index number of one to each asset class as the initial investment. So with equities at a rate of 7.4% a year, the initial investment will double, as we mentioned, in 11 years, right? Obviously a little bit less than 11 years, but we're rounding up to the nearest year. And in this case, as we said, it will take 11 years to double your money in, in equities, just globally on an archetypal basis. So this isn't in one particular market, this is averaged across 23 different markets, including many of the developed markets, frontier markets that we know of today. And they include the US, the UK, Canada, Switzerland, Germany, France, etc. If you wanna access the exact list, we will uh, direct you to the CSRI source book. Just Google it and you'll be able to find the access. It's also the same used in Triumph of the Optimist, a really good book that we'd recommend to any of our listeners here. In fact, it's my favorite book of all time. So let's go back to bonds now. Bonds would have returned a net gain of 42.92% over an 11 year period and bills would have returned 25.68% over this same period. So by analyzing these returns, equities, listen up very closely, equities would have returned 
2.33 times that of bonds, and let's switch to bonds as a comparator, bonds would have returned 1.67 times that of bills. So one would assume that the calculations that we've looked at over the past few minutes in today's episode would actually encourage investors to pour the entirety of their capital into equities. Well, this assumption would completely ignore the fact that at least two countries in the 23 country wide Credit Suisse data set had their equity markets wiped out when the government shut down the capital market, some of these nations actually included Russia and China, developed world capital markets of which many would be surprised in hearing being home to such large wipeouts. I know obviously when you hear Russia, you think, okay, there's a likelihood of a default there. China, a lot of volatility, but China has maintained 6.5%, I believe, actually 6% GDP growth since 1980 or 1981. I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but that is very impressive, considering the nominal figure has become more impressive year on year, and it's difficult to maintain that kind of thing. So for them to completely shut down their capital markets, that happened around the 1940s, I believe, 1950, that kind of area. That is crazy. Investors would have lost 100% of their entire investment, which is crazy, right? But uh, one other thing we could also talk about is that the depths of the Wall Street crash, US equities had fallen by 80% in real terms. So we're talking adjusted for inflation. And after this had happened, many investors were basically ruined, especially those who had decided to buy stocks with borrowed money, as these guys were using something called leverage. And the leverage positions would have resulted in the accumulation of crippling debts of which they wouldn't be able to pay off. And so when interest is applied, they are running for the exit, which eventually results in bankruptcies. When people are defaulting on their loans, they aren't earning incomes, they aren't able to invest, and the governments need to say bailout in the sense that uh, governments would have to provide, I don't know, welfare payments. That's an important thing. In fact, such a crash like the Wall Street crash in the 20s, 1920s, in fact, had lived on in the memories of investors for at least a generation. We think about it right now. And many actually chose to subsequently shun equity investment after all of that. They thought, no, this isn't for us. But this actually meant that they would be missing out on the greatest bull market in history, the recovery from the Great Depression. This included a 325% rally in the value of the S&P 500 index, otherwise known as the Standard & Poor's 500 index. Over 57 months, beginning June 1932, that stuff is crazy to say the least, but we must note that some countries in this sample did experience large drawdowns. As we said, an investor had actually lost, or would have lost, 80% from the peak in the 1929 to 1930s bear market in equities. But by applying some simple mathematics, we can note that a 75% depreciation in the value of an investment portfolio would actually require an investor to realize a 300% gain just to get back to break even. That's the equivalent of 20 years of compounded returns, 7.4% a year. That's the best case scenario that we used for real equity returns. In fact, a much smaller decline of 
50% would require 10 years of the previously mentioned rate to break even, or that rate of return that we just talked about. That was 7.4%, real returns in equities. Crazy stuff, and we must be very careful. If you shun investment as a whole, to conclude this kind of mini-series of historical investment returns, you are likely setting yourself up for disaster because you're giving up future returns, but you're also only mitigating your losses. You're not able to turn losses in a bear market to profits. You're just losing less than the market would be, but you're also earning less than the market would be in a situation where there's a huge bull market. That's not great. You will likely underperform in most scenarios. It's better to sometimes look at things like diversification. Over the next couple of episodes, we'll be looking at things like that. We'll be looking at different asset strategies. So asset allocation strategies, an important area that in fact a lot of people shun. If you shun equity investment, then you're missing out on basically any returns, right? But I mean, if you put your money in a bank, you're going to lose money in real terms. If you put your money in a bank at, I don't know, 1.1%. Let's talk about cash ices. You probably get 1.4% right now. If you're a listener from the UK, well, inflation's at around 2% a year. You are losing at least that 0.6% real return. In fact, we had inflation of 2.7%, I believe. A while back was a reported figure. One was 3.2, one was 3.9. A couple of ones I've been looking at recently. That shows that our real returns have actually been depreciating in a sense that we now have less purchasing power that we had in the previous year. That's worrying. Now to avoid this, it's better to divest your assets. Sometimes you could look at putting funds into gold, a certain allocation, something that is supposedly an inflation protected asset. Many would argue with that. A lot of the times in bear markets, gold has actually done not so well. It hasn't returned what you would have expected it to as a quote unquote portfolio hedge. Well, if we look at some different asset management strategies, those that put say a third in bonds, they put a third in US 10 year treasuries, you'd probably get 1.53% right now, but you could put it in short term bills. You'd probably get more in short term bills. I mean, three months, maybe half a percent, 0.4%, you probably beat it a little bit, but uh, the only issue is you gotta make sure you're in treasury inflation protected securities, not those that are like corporate bonds. That the Corporate bonds actually have a lot more risk, also a lot more reward, but they do bear similar volatility to equities, which is worrying. I could give an example. Uh, you could look at the Royal London Class Y income bond. That one was actually uh, one that had dropped 2%, something like a couple of days or so ago. And the yearly return is something like 5%. What we look to do is smoothen out returns, smoothen out bond-like volatility, basically, but equity-like returns. So by changing your portfolio and restructuring your asset structure, you are going to be increasing your returns whilst reducing risk, or you're going to be reducing your risk by a greater amount than the returns that you are giving up. Safety, it's almost like insurance, it's wonderful. But we're gonna talk about so many different ideas. There are so many things we could talk about. We don't know where to start, in fact. Tomorrow, I'll think about it, and I will start on a place where hopefully we can build 
onto some of these other interesting ideas. But we've gone a lot that we could also mention with historical investment returns. But we'll try and merge some of those into some of the interesting ideas that we're going to introduce to our dearest listeners at the Quantum Cast. I think that this is a perfect time to wrap up today's episode of the Quantum Cast. I must end it there. I've been your host, Ryan Kier. And if you haven't already, make sure that you sign up on our website at quantumresearch.co.uk. And if you'd like to email us regarding business inquiries or just some general suggestions, feel free to hit us up at info at quantumresearch.co.uk. You can find our email on our site, whether you'd like to message me personally or message Luke, feel free to do whatever you want. I will end it on that note. I hope you all have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Ryan Kia. Until next time.